Hi everyone and welcome to Leukemia Chatters, a podcast about blood cancer from Leukemia Care. This month it was just me, Zach and Kate. We chatted about the taboo of talking about dying and this was to go with Dying Matters Week, which was also this month, to try and encourage more of you to talk about death, dying and planning for the future. I hope you enjoy. I'm joined by Zach. Hello. And Kate. Hello. Um, last month we also had Chris and Nicole, but they are... I don't know, are we allowed to say what they're doing? Does anybody know? I don't know, you're on a podcast no. now, you might as well leave this a little bit. <laughs> Let's just say they're doing on a, a secret, secret project yeah. for another podcast, um, which I think will be out later in the year, so that'll be quite exciting. Um, but for this time, we are here to chat about um, a bit of a morbid subject, you could say, um, but it's Dying Matters Week, and so we thought we'd tie in the podcast with that and chat a bit about... Um, the taboos around death and planning for the future and also at the end we'll bring you a bit of other, other news going on in the blood cancer world so where do we start with this um, I guess um, why don't we talk about dying uh, as much as we should like okay so to start I guess we should say that whilst you know, treatments for leukemia have improved quite a lot in recent years. Um, people do still, unfortunately, die of leukemia. So it's a topic you should all talk about a little bit more. It's a fact of life. Why is it still taboo in in Britain, but also in, in general, I guess it's still. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, I guess one of the things to say is, is why it's important to actually talk about it as well. It's, yeah. Because, I mean... If you find a topic difficult to talk about, it doesn't need to be talked about. That's that's fine. But dying matters. It, it does. Obviously, that's the name of the, the week. But it does matter because it obviously it can happen. I mean, hopefully, particularly for the chronic leukemias, that's not an issue people will ha- ever have to face um, as a result of their leukemia. I mean, obviously, everybody will die of something at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and planning for the future. I mean, when people have chosen not to plan, um, there can be all kinds of problems. So it yeah. really is a topic that people need to think about in advance, even though it's a difficult one to to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say just leukemia aside, just everyone should be talking about death and it should be more of a topic of conversation because as well, I think people don't talk about it because of fear, because they're scared, because it's the unknown. Yeah. Um, and the fact that if, say, family members or friends do die, it's generally kind of not spoken about with children as well, because it's for fear yeah, of like I bring them not understanding it or upsetting them. So really, like it's more by the time you come an adult is when you really have to actually deal with death. Um, and it shouldn't be like that because it happens to everyone. We all die at some point from something. So why why are we so scared to talk about it? Mm. Yeah, with the kids there. I read that the first time people experience a bereavement is like 20 so it's not actually that old so if you're not bringing it up as when people are still classed as children they're not going to be prepared for that first no. eventuality because it is an eventuality for everyone to yeah. experience someone they know dying and if we talk about it more then it will take out the fear factor of it mm-hmm. i mean everyone dies in different ways and from different things so some people it's very traumatic some people it's very sudden others long drawn out um so you can't 
there's never there's no one way of dying is there but i feel like if everyone spoke more openly about it it would become more accepted and people would actually be able to to deal with the fact that one day they're going to die yeah in a much better way um i agree i've written down some notes just things like Perhaps admitting there an end, there is an end, is like sometimes seen as a sign of weakness. Like it's almost yeah. we need stoicism, like just keep calm and carry on, just get on with it, that type of thing. Does that? Do you think that comes from the British, like stiff upper lip thing, or do you think that's perhaps, a more general human thing? Maybe I would say it's more a general human thing, but mm. perhaps it is a British thing. Some cultures really embrace death, don't they, and celebrate it? Um, yeah. I is don't it, think we do. Is it the Greeks that tend to like really express their emotions at funerals? Well, has anybody seen that? People I don't like, know. like throw themselves over coffins and get really upset. And I've seen British people go, "Oh no, you can't do that." Mm-hmm. But it's, it, it, if it's a way of them exp- expressing their grief, then why not? Yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we as British people are just a bit more like. Yeah, I think it's it's um it's embarrassment and yeah. awkwardness and not wanting to show your emotions. You Weird know, thing. <laughs> God yeah. of all times when somebody's died, that is when you're experiencing grief and loss and sadness, and you want to celebrate their life. Like, why should you feel awkward or embarrassed about getting upset about it? Yeah. And I guess one of the other things we probably talk about is terminal cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So, I mean, when you don't know it's going to happen, or, or obviously you know it's going to happen at some point, but you're not thinking it's, it's a, when it's going to be a surprise that somebody passes away, mm-hmm. then maybe it is more usual not to specifically plan for it. But once you know perhaps there aren't any more treatment options, um, or you, you do, you're just at the stage where you have a terminal diagnosis then but planning for it can become very different. I mean, I've had family members where entire funerals have been planned out before they were said exactly what they wanted, mm. but also other other people where there's been no plans at all and it's been a case of what do you want to happen um, after you die? I mean, particularly when we are talking some of the practicalities, something like a will, mm. um, what do you want to happen with your, but even personal items rather than necessarily money? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. And I think, actually, we were talking about this before we started the podcast today about wills. And especially in the younger sort of generation, it's not really seen as uh, necessary or essential. Oh, I've got time for that. You know, I'll do yeah. it another time. Um when actually it is, it is essential, especially if you own a property or you have money, savings, anything you want to leave, even if it's like a hypocrite a watch right or now, something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And yeah. we were all in this space. Open honesty, don't have a will at the moment. Yeah. We were, and I didn't either until I was diagnosed with leukemia. I didn't have a will. I own my own house, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> uh, so I should have had a will. Um, and it was only when I was diagnosed that there's a consultant sort of said, whoa, you know, you need to get this as soon as possible. So as soon as you get out of hospital, get a will. I mean, I know it was different circumstances for me because, you know, there was a possibility of me not making it through the leukemia treatment. Um, but I do think it kind of gave me the kick up the bum to go and do it. And maybe others, you know, I've, I'm always saying to my friends, have you got a will? Have you done this? <laughs> 
but we got like uh, life insurance, which I didn't have either. So yeah, I've got that. So I feel a little well done. Yeah. So there's all sorts of things around illness and dying that we, I guess, as younger folk, sort of say, mm, well, "That's not going to happen yet." You know, I've got time. I'll be all right. And you don't even think about it when mm. actually everyone should be thinking about it because we're all going to die something and we can all get ill at any time or we can get, you know, into an accident. So, yeah, yeah in terms of wills, I would definitely say everyone should do it because I, I know quite a few sort of family members or friends who have who have died and then didn't have a will and it's not been a very pleasant experience for people afterwards. Families have been arguing and... Mm things have probably haven't gone to the people they wanted them to. So I don't think people realise what actually happens if you don't have a will. It yes. doesn't automatically just go to someone you're related to. Yeah. There's a whole court process and it's just really, really complicated. And also how easy it actually is to do a will. Yeah. I mean, obviously mm. you can go down the former route of going and visiting a solicitor, many of whom yeah. will do it for free or for a donation for a charity or something at certain periods in the year. Yeah. But equally, you can buy will packs from WH Smith. They're less than 20 quid. Yeah. Um, and to make sure, to, to avoid all the difficulties, it yeah. is... Obviously, you hope that that doesn't happen and that that's not something you need, but one of those situations where it's better to have it and not need yeah. it um, than need it and not have it. Yeah, and you can change it at any point. Yeah. So if you've got someone in your will, you think, actually, I really don't like that person anymore, <laughs> you can get them written out of it. You know, it doesn't have, it's not set in stone. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, we do have a toolkit coming on that very soon. So mm-hmm. if anybody wants more information, keep, keep an eye out. But yes. Yeah, I agree. Will's very, very important. Yes. I just wanted to pick up on something you said a minute ago, Kate, um, about your doctor yeah, bringing up that sort of thing. How did that make you feel at the time? At the time, terrified, but mm. it was sort of the day after they told me um, that I had leukemia and I was in hospital having sort of emergency treatment anyway. So I knew the severity of the situation. I knew it was sort of... Um, I wasn't in a good place. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't so shocking when they said it. It was more, I just thought, how am I going to do this? You know, because I couldn't, they were saying I was going to be in hospital for weeks and I, or months at that point. I thought, how am I going to get anyone to do this? I can't, you know, I'm not in a position to, to do it whilst mm-hmm. I'm in hospital. So it was a little bit um, scary. And part of me thought, oh, I wish I'd have done that before before I became ill. Um but I'm glad they told me about it. I'm glad they did. And as soon as I was well enough and able to, I did go and, and sort out a will. And actually, it was funny, just the response from the solicitor when I sort of went in to do it. Um, he questioned why I was doing it, you know, and why are you so young? Why are you doing it? <laughs> I'm giving you yeah, money to make a will. Exactly. When I sort of explained, well, I've got cancer, it was like, right, okay, you know, <laughs> the atmosphere changed in the room and it was more serious. Why do you need a reason to do it? Exactly. Though? You shouldn't. It should just <laughs> I'm be. I'm going to die at yeah, some point. It everyone should be accepted. Does. Everyone, you know, anyone could do a will. If you've got property or something, a possession that you'd like to leave to somebody, then great. Go ahead and do it. Do you think. Your whole experience of having leukemia has kind of changed your relationship with death or your feelings about dying? Yeah, 100% changed, yeah. I mean, I dealt with family bereavements um, in the years before I was diagnosed. So I'd seen, you know, close family members die. And so I'd had a really raw experience with it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that had already changed my perception anyway. Um, but having somebody say to you, yeah, you've got this life-threatening illness and it's it's rapid and it's aggressive and we've got to treat it straight away and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, it 100% changes everything. Every little thing in your life just becomes completely insignificant. The only things that matter are sort of family, immediate family, your loved ones and, and yourself basically and survival. And that is purely what goes through your head. Um, and it does, it does alter how you think about life. If, you know, I'm, I'm sort of lucky if you like, I got through the treatment and I'm in remission now. So I'm kind of going back to normal inverted commas, but. You do feel like a changed person. Like I don't feel like I was the same person I was before I had cancer um, in many ways. But, yeah, in terms of life and thinking about life, it does change you. But the immediacy of being told that you might die and that those feelings of, oh, my God, I've got to go and live my life. I've got to go and do this, that, and the other, and everything's going to change. Nothing else matters. You know, that is kind of fleeting. You can't live like that. Yeah. Um, so although it's always on the back burner in my life, it's like you also then have to live normally. You know, you have to work, you have to earn money, you have to just do the mundane things in life as well. You can't just sort of throw everything, although I would like to sometimes just travel the world. But yeah, you do have to um, sort of come down a little bit from that emotion. But it, it changes everything, you know, and you do become a little bit, fearless in a way because mm. you face death you know and that is the worst thing in life you can face really and when you're faced with your life not being there anymore so yeah I think there's an element of things that used to be terrifying suddenly aren't so terrifying because you think oh, okay that's fine that's easy to deal with I can get through that um but then on the other side of it there's lots of other um thoughts that will make you question life you know and why why we're here and all of those big questions in life which i'm still waiting for the answer so aren't we all yeah i'll get an epiphany one day <laughs> oh, okay kind of linked with that i'm just looking at the statistics i've got in front of me and it says 34 percent of people say they rarely or never think of death so would you say you think about it more often now yeah definitely definitely in what way so, so I, don't, I think I'm probably one of those 34% of people. Yeah, I'd say I probably yeah. fall into that 34% as well. I don't think you have to have faced an illness to then, or an accident, mm. say, to be mm. thinking about death. I think it's it's a, it's a fact of life, isn't it? We all know we're going to die at some point. I've said that like a million times in this podcast already, but <laughs> we are. I think that's a fact message. of life. That's one thing, death and taxes. So, yeah, I think <laughs> we won't have discussion about taxes. <laughs> no, no. Um, but, yeah, I do think about death more. I do. And quite often I think, okay, so there was a lot of moments throughout my treatment that I could have died, you know, um, and I didn't for, for various reasons, treatment mainly. Um so I've kind of faced it a few times over the past few years. So it is it's always on my mind, okay, you got you didn't die. Um you're still here. Sometimes I say like I shouldn't really be here, but I am, because if I hadn't had any treatment then I definitely would have died. Um so it is like I almost feel like I'm on sort of bonus time or like extra time if that makes sense mm -hmm. 
Um, and sometimes I think, God, you know, you're wasting, wasting that extra time. You need to make more of, more of the time you're given. But then also there's that you need to recover and, you know, repair after having all the extensive treatment and everything. And also mentally, you know, it takes its toll hugely on your mental health. So, um, yeah, I think, I do think about it a lot. Yeah. You say you two think about it in what, in what way? So it depends what you say in the original statistic about whether you think about death or not. I mean, I certainly Mm -hmm. don't think about my own death. But Um, working somewhere as we do, we're inevitably... It talk about it much more than I ever, ever did before. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's one of those things like leukemia, for example. Again, obviously, working for a leukemia charity, you talk about leukemia a lot more than you would do otherwise, and it also seems to come across all the time. Um, and also, I mean, again, we're much younger. Depending on the age group, you're more likely to obviously experience other people that you know passing away from, I mean, hopefully obviously that's from old age rather than from something else, mm, but mm. it's not something that obviously I have come across, particularly family, but also people working here. Um, but it's not a topic that I necessarily think about a lot. Mm. No. Yeah, I think um, it does one of the things that ha- having an illness or even just thinking, you know, you might, to be close to death it makes you evaluate your life and maybe that is why people are slightly nervous about talking about death is because of regrets or things you know that they Mm. are shame you know there's the shame element of it that's a big reason why they think a lot of people don't like psychologists think a lot of people don't talk about death is because of the regrets and the things that they've done in their life, all the things yeah. that they wish they had done and didn't mm. do, you know, um, or said and shouldn't have said, or relationships that were lost or whatever. Interesting. Mm. Well, we thought about that before. Yeah. And it does. It does. Like, I had loads of time to think when I was in hospital. And you do, you know, you think of all your achievements and things like that and what you still would like to do in your life. You know, it's like it runs through. It's like you're watching a movie of your life. You know, it's very odd, but yeah. yeah. Interesting there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I was talking to someone um, from another charity, actually, that does end-of-life stuff called Compassion and Dying yesterday, and she was talking about how some people even don't want to talk about it because they feel like, it makes more death more uh, more likely to come. So yeah, we think. Yeah, you're just more like real. baiting it or something. Yes. Like that. Yeah, I mean, it's I, an odd concept for me as someone who's really not superstitious or yes. religious. But I guess yeah. maybe that's where it comes from. Yeah, it's almost like when people say, "Oh, you get hit by a bus tomorrow," and people go, "Don't say that! Don't say that!" Exactly. It's like, yeah, but it's a fact, you know. Or anything could happen. Yeah. Um, you could fall down your stairs like I did the other day, you know, and that could be it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And actually, when I was ill and going through treatment, and there was a couple of times when the consultant sort of said to me, you know, things aren't looking too good, but, you know, there's still a chance you can survive this. Um, but you need, you know, you need to get your, your affairs in order, if you like, so a will or, you know, just whatever you need to do to be comfortable. And... It, and so I did start thinking about a funeral and things like that and, like, what songs I would like and, you know, do I want to be cremated or buried and things like that. And I would try to talk to to family members and, and friends about it. 
And the 90% of the responses I got were, oh, no, you can't talk about that. You can't talk about that because you're not going to die. So it's fine. I said, yeah, but everyone's going to die. So, you know, really, I want to know, do you want to be cremated or buried? You know, yeah. and I turn it back on them. And I think it was that whole, if you talk about death, you're admitting defeat. You know, you, yeah. you, you're you talking like this cancer is going to get you and you can't talk like that. You've got to stay positive and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, we talked about that last time. Yeah. And I get that. But that's also really distressing for somebody who is facing death um, to be told, OK, no, I don't want to hear what you want. I don't want to hear exactly. how you want to die because, you know, I'm not ready to hear it. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm ready to say it. So just listen. And I would just say I would definitely probably have been in the camp of going no no no, don't talk like that you know initially but having been on the other side of it I think actually it's much better to just say you know oh I am a bit uncomfortable about talking about this but I'd much rather know what you want because mm. I've arranged funerals for people family members and it is hard when you don't know what they want you know um, and I've also had friends whose loved ones have been dying and they haven't been able to ask what they want, you know, in terms of burials or cremations because it's so sad and they don't want to address that with that person because then it is admitting that it's actually going to happen. Um, but wouldn't you rather know what your yeah. loved one wants? The diamatic statistics on funerals is 30% of people have told other people what they want for funeral. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So that leaves 70% of those people's families going yeah. I don't know what they want and yes funerals are a cele- supposed to be yes yeah. supposed to be do you want them to be a celebration of life as well yeah. as saying goodbye so yeah you want to know how people want to be remembered yeah everyone and wants that, to be remembered in a particular way that grieving time afterwards when you've lost someone is actually really awful and then if you've got that kind of guilt or worry on top of it that you're not actually doing what they would have wished because you don't know what they wanted it's even worse you know so i just think for the sake of a 10 minute conversation of this is what i want please do it if i die you can even have it written into a will I did. When I went to get my will, he was like, anything you want to add? You know, do you want to be cremated? Or where do you want your ashes to be scattered? You know, all of these things you can put within your will. You can put as much detail as you like. So, exactly. so you don't, even if you don't want to talk exactly. about it, you don't have to talk you about don't it. Have to. You don't have to. You can just to. plan for the future. Yeah, exactly. And also it's like people who have been given a terminal diagnosis, you know, it's even more vital for them to talk about this if they want to. You know, everybody does. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree. Just briefly, terminology. We, I feel like since we started talking, we've just, I don't know if it's our personalities or we've just said the word dying, or talking about death quite simply, but a lot of people still want to say pass away or whatever. Yeah. Is that creating a barrier, do we think, to actually expressing what we want by not even being able to say the word dying well speaking just to myself i mean personally i'd rather use the term like uh, skirting around an issue i find makes it quite difficult to, t- to actually talk about the issue i mean yeah. the topic of the thing is dying matters so it would have been quite interesting if we then started using the words passed away so maybe that's not necessarily representative but i think you can sometimes yeah make make the conversation difficult simply by trying to say oh i'm sorry like, i was just thinking i'm sorry for your loss for example is meant in a sensitive way but actually in many cases you are say you, you're you're just not addressing the issue mm. 
Yeah, I agree with that. But then it's quite, it's difficult. I mean, well, how would you word it then? (laughs) You know, um, you know, I don't want to say it so bluntly, but it would be quite blunt if you went up to someone and said, you know, yeah, in a different way. I think it's kind of softening the blow a little bit, or so a gentler way of um, of referencing it. Um, Yeah, I think for me. I used to say passed away a lot when I was talking about death because it was almost painful for me to say so-and-so is dead. So I'd say they passed away because it just felt more, you know, not as Mm -hmm. intense. But now I'm I'm way more the other way. So I definitely, you know, it's like they're dead and that's it and they've died. And it's the right terminology. It's just there's so Mm -hmm. much emotion and kind of, it's so final isn't it mm -hmm. someone's dead that's it yeah from the way you said it I think maybe the issue comes from the finality of the words Mm -hmm. so passed away gives the impression they could still be somewhere which is a nice thought which all of us have had about our loved ones that have died Um, whereas dead is definitely a you know final word Yeah. yeah and I also remember years ago overhearing a conversation between a friend of mine or a colleague of mine actually um, and she was talking to somebody whose family member I'm not sure who had died recently and they'd obviously said I've I've lost this person and my colleague then said well that was very careless of you where did you put them uh, as it's a kind not of appropriate yeah, time to make that it's joke. awful and I think but it's she, a joke in bad taste anyway very, but certainly yeah, not yeah, at that time I think it was meant to ease the kind of like the mood I don't know but I just cringed and sat there and yeah. just thought oh my goodness like why would you say that so maybe taking away that term, that vocabulary and that terminology of just so and so has died okay that's it it's serious and it is always serious when someone dies so Mm. there we go yeah and it's knowing what to say as well i think everyone flounders in that kind of situation um you know you've just someone's just told you they've they've you know gone through a bereavement somebody's died and it's quite often you think oh okay, just be really careful what you say here. Try not to upset them even further. Obviously, you might get upset as well. So it's like, it's the not knowing what to say. Um, But then I'd much rather people would say to me, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you or give you a hug or whatever. Is there anything I can do? You know, do you want to talk? Whatever. That actually a lot of people avoid other people if they don't know what to say or they feel uncomfortable yeah, or awkward around death thing yeah about. and you get it around sort of thing yeah you get it around illness you get it around someone who's terminally ill especially someone who's terminally ill I, I think it um you know I've experienced it with family members where a lot of close friends and family have like turned away from them mm-hmm. because they don't know what to say and it's awkward and it's you know uncomfortable and maybe it's like almost showing the frailty of their mortality you know yeah i think that's what people worry about being confronted with something they don't want to yeah discuss rather than yeah the person who's actually upset exactly yeah yeah moving on if that's all right with everyone um i just wanted to talk about some statistics about whether we're actually prepared for death um so we've talked a lot about how people avoid talking about it and stuff, but 
particularly about planning for treatment. So with most leukemia, um, I think it's fair to say there are a few options for most people would you, with that. Yeah. It would be fair to say, wouldn't it? But only 7% of people have actually written down the treatments they don't want to have if they couldn't make the decision for themselves. As someone who advocates for other people in getting decisions over treatment, does that concern you, do you think? Um, I suppose not just from treatment's perspective. I mean, if we broaden it out, just like, because in many cases, people won't have thought about it before diagnosis, unsurprisingly. So if it was mm. not just leukemia, if you thought about it more broadly, like being hit by a car, for example, and say you were unconscious and people were having to make your treatment decisions for you, um, it's it's not something you talk about generally. I mean, I know I've I have actually had that conversation with people, but only having watched like a TV program about it and kind of going, oh well, what would I want to happen in that kind of scenario? It's the kind of it's not something you specifically bring up and think, oh yes, let me tell people what I would want to happen in that scenario. And it's that you think you've got time. You know, yeah. we all think we've yeah. got time to do this. Oh, there's no rush with that. It's um, always better to put it in paper and then enjoy that time. I think Is so. Yeah, there's no, like, we shouldn't all be sort of living on the edge thinking yeah. happen at any By moment. writing it down once doesn't mean it's yeah. always going to be there in the back of your mind. It's just you can file it away. You can forget about it as long yeah. as you know where it is. Exactly. And you all someone you're, else knows where it is. Yeah. Exactly. And your wishes and your wants may change over time. You know, you might suddenly think, actually, I want to be buried, not cremated anymore. You know, so you can change it. So I was chatting to the person from Compassion and Dying the other day, and there are actually legal documents you can create to set out what you would and wouldn't have in certain situations. And I feel like more people should do that kind of thing. Or you can get a power of attorney set up and let other people make the decisions for you, but at least you've still got something there to make sure your wishes are taken into account if you couldn't make that decision. So more people should definitely think about doing that, I think. Yes, definitely. Is that something, you say you had a will written down, but did you think more broadly about what you would do yeah. if you couldn't make the decision for yourself? So power of attorney, I did think about it. Um, I knew about the document, so I knew I knew of it. Um, but I wasn't in a position where I thought I needed that um, because... For me, at the time, there was only one treatment route, really, and it started immediately, so I didn't really have any options. Um, so it would either work or wouldn't, <laughs> really. Um, and there were no decisions to be made other than the fact that I didn't have a will at the time. Um, so, no, I didn't go down the power of attorney route. But, again, I'm being a bit naive about that now because I'm thinking, well, you know, I've got time and I probably won't need it until I get a bit older. But, really, you know, you do. You could – I could use it. Um, maybe everyone should have one. Mm. Yeah. That's the opinion of dying and matters and compassion and dying. And I think, personally – I would condone that. Might as well plan. I'm I'm one of those organised types, so I'm like, yeah, get it all down on paper, and then, but then I haven't got a will, so maybe I should be more organised. Who knows? Yeah, takeaway for you from the yes, yeah, it's all about me. (laughs) Yeah, my learning. We're all going to get a pair of attorneys. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
Moving on to other news in the uh, podcast, in the blood cancer world. Um, It was International Nurses Day on the 12th of May. Um, And I know, Kate, you've been very... um, that's not nice as it seems nice of you. Been, positive, maybe. Yeah, very <laughs> yeah. positive about your yeah. nurses. Oh, yeah. Treatment. I don't know if you wanted to mention them. They are amazing. <laughs> My nurses have just been like saints, honestly. I can't thank them enough because they're there all the time. You know, that when your friends and family have gone from visiting hours and the consultants have gone, they're there with you. You know, they're the ones that see you through it all and the healthcare assistants as well. Yeah. And the cleaners in the hospital too. You see them every day. You you get into a really good relationship with well, nearly all of them, um, and they genuinely care about you, especially for the leukemia patients, the acute ones, especially because you're in isolation, so you don't see anyone. You can't leave that room. So whoever comes in, you know, has got to you've got to have a good relationship with them. But, but yeah, the nurses are just amazing. And they sit with you, they cry with you, they laugh with you, they hug you, even though they probably shouldn't. <laughs> but they do. And even now when it's like almost two and a half years since I first was diagnosed, um, I can still go onto that ward and they'll remember me. And I remember them and we have a chat and it's lovely. And like I've become friends with some of them. And I just think what they do is amazing because they go from – Patient to patient, some of them are in a really, really bad way and it must affect them emotionally. Yeah. Um, but yet they come in and they take flack from certain patients who aren't very kind to them or they're in pain and so they're not being very, you know, pleasant. Um, and they just get on with it and they deal with it and they do everything so well. Um, yeah, I think they're amazing. Yeah. So well, yeah. I totally agree with that. Big thank you to all the nurses out there. <laughs> Zach, did you want to say a quick word about the sort of things we do for nurses? A little segue into Yeah. Um, go, from, go from Kate, thank you very much, to all the nurses, to some of the things that we do as a charity. Um, yeah, so we've got a variety of different services available for nurses. Um, we run, we've run. we got online e-learning training modules, which are free, CPD accredited for nurses to keep up to date with the latest news in the different kind of treatments. Um, we equally do conferences. We've got three different conferences this year, one in Manchester, one in Bristol, one in Glasgow, um, so that, again, nurses can come and learn about the latest updates. Um, we also have magazines, again, to keep nurses updated. And we've also got something which is new or done slightly differently this year is a new bursary scheme for nurses to help fund training, um, whether that's attending conferences, whether that's uh, a module as part of their master's to become a clinical nurse specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll probably not get political and start talking about NHS staffing and nurses, <laughs> um, but there clearly is a need for more clinical nurse specialists and anything we can do to help um, people to, with the education they need to do that, yeah. um, they're better. Yeah, we want everyone to have every leukemia patient to have the same experience Kate's had with her nurses, I guess. Yeah. Is, is where we're going with that. Yes. And the CNSs, really, I should single them out because they are so hardworking and they do develop deep relationships with, I would say, nearly all of their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're incredible. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just one of the things to flag up from a chronic perspective, if you don't know who your CNS is or haven't been in contact with them, do reach out. Um, they are meant to be a point of contact to ask questions. Yeah. Um, and we do hear that the experience of acute patients spending a lot of time in hospital 
where they will have much more easy access to the nurses can be very different. So even if you're not regularly in hospital, do make take the opportunity really to get in touch and they are a key point of support. Yeah, definitely. They are. And actually, I only really used my CNSs after I'd left hospital for the first time because I wasn't really aware of what they were or what they did when I was first in there. So I was just kind of dealing with the consultants and nurses. It was only when I was discharged and was having treatment as an outpatient that I was then sort of more clued up as to what a CNS was and what they did. So I would say for the acute leukemia patients as well, ask about your CNS. Who is it? Can I meet them? Um, And know what they do because they are brilliant. But if you don't know they're there, then like me, you wouldn't access them. Yeah. Well, on a workforce kind of thread, um, read some... Slightly concerning news about GP numbers dropped for the first time in 50 years, reports have said. Now, we work a lot with GPs and they are the route a lot of people start at for being diagnosed with leukemia. So should we be concerned? I guess, Zach, this is one for you to start with. personal opinion or an organisational perspective (laughs) on whether we should be concerned about GP numbers? Um, Well... (laughs) personal perspective um i think it, i mean it is quite concerning that gp numbers are dropping they are a hugely important part of the healthcare system um with an aging population we need more gps yeah. rather than fewer and i know that is a big push for the healthcare system to encourage people to go into general practice yeah so yeah there are, there are, let's look at the positives but it's not really an ideal scenario no definitely Kate, you were you started off. I don't want to say journey because it's not really the right word, but the diagnosis portion. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like my nightmare. After GP yeah. surgery, <laughs> does it concern you that if GP numbers are dropping, there might inevitably be fewer appointments? Yeah, yeah. It would have been even more difficult for you to get yeah, a diagnosis. Definitely. Yeah, it is concerning. It is. I think everyone should be concerned about it. Um, I'm concerned about the NHS as a whole, but that's another topic. But yeah. we'll save that for a separate yeah. podcast. <laughs> uh, because I just think, yeah, it's struggling. But yeah, it is concerning. It is. Well, in the meantime, we are trying to help GPs spot leukemia. The GPs that are there. Um, if everybody wants more information on our GP training, do get in touch with us. Um, other things going on in the news that I noticed. There is a. Um, particular drug called Kuvan, which is getting a lot of press at the moment. Um, it's not a blood cancer drug, but I did find it interesting that it's been deemed too expensive um, for the NHS to pay for. And I wondered if, Zach, you could explain where this idea of too expensive comes from in terms of NHS funding. Yeah, I mean, it's something we come across. Obviously, this is not a blood cancer drug, as you said, but it's something we come across in the leukemia space of when new treatments are available and how they become available. Mm. Um, So in order for drugs to be funded, we'll talk specifically about England here, but there are similar processes. There's an equivalent in Scotland and Wales. Um, But in England, the body is called NICE. It's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Um, And their job is to assess new drugs and determine whether they are a cost-effective use of NHS resources. Um, So essentially, they look at the cost of the drug 
Um, they look at the benefit of the drug and what it's likely to be from what's been observed in the clinical trials of the drugs um, and determine whether or not this is something that should be made available on the NHS, whether it's a good value for money for NHS resources. Um, it can be quite a um, political and hotly debated topic because in many cases it can be seen as putting value on someone's life if that's the only treatment option that's available for people um, and leukemia care do get involved in all leukemia appraisals um, and try and campaign for what, where the benefit of this is for patients and why we think it should be available mm-hmm. um, but it can be a really politically difficult um, situation I mean that one particularly um I believe from what I've seen in the news that that treatment actually hasn't even been assessed by NICE yet. Um, And the NICE process can take many months in order to come to a decision, which is incredibly distressing for patients if there's a treatment that's available um, and been shown to work, but isn't available yet in the UK. The reason I picked this one up is it's a very rare um, disorder, as leukemia is also relatively rare. And I guess... Is it a particular issue? Um, is there a particular issue with getting drugs for rare, rarer diseases through the process? Do they tend to be more expensive? Um, well, so yeah, rare, rarer drugs or drugs that are used for smaller patient populations mm. are, are called something called orphan drugs or ultra orphan if they're particularly rare. Um, and in many cases, the science that's gone into the development can be of a similar cost as where there's a bigger population and inevitably, therefore, it, the drugs are likely to be more expensive and it can be more difficult to show value for money. Um, one of the other challenges can be that where the populations of patients are smaller, the data that comes out of clinical trials is therefore more uncertain. It's not to say that there isn't a benefit, but it can be much harder to show the benefit um, if there aren't enough patients to, to test it on. Yeah. Um, even if you now know that this drug works, it's quite hard to show how well it works in comparison to other treatments if the data isn't available. Yeah. Um, and that is an issue we do sometimes come across, mm-hmm. um, particularly with some of the smaller patient populations. It's not necessarily the rarer conditions, but if a treatment's developed for, say, a small population for a particular yeah. type of leukemia. There's a trend recently to developing ones uh, that only target certain genetic, genetic mutations, mutations yeah. and things like that. So it's a challenge for us as well in the blood mm-hmm. cancer space, isn't it? Yeah. And the final bit of news I wanted to pick up on, okay. Kate, your opinion on this would be particularly interesting, was there was a bit of controversy recently about a, a video put out by Breast Cancer Now that was branded as a little bit fluffy and positive. So if anyone hasn't seen this, um, the advert used some taglines um, that breast cancer patients found inappropriate, perhaps you could even say offensive, um, and they felt the advert with all their happy people didn't reflect their cancer experience. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's a problem in the cancer advertising space that we don't accurately reflect the experience of cancer patients? Do we fluff it up a little bit too much? I think when you say the word cancer, it's scary and it scares people who've got it, who have had experience with it and people who've never experienced anything to do with cancer in their lives. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in order to have a good campaign, which is usually backed by 
industry who are trying to make money, which is fair enough, you know, that's that's what it's all about, but also support the cancer charities in the process, which is great. I think you do need to soften it slightly to make it more approachable, I suppose, as a as a campaign. But I feel like there's a, there's a limit. You know, you can go too far the other way. You can make it too fluffy and too joyous. And it's still an awful thing to have to go through. Um, it's terrible for many people and it's scary and it's traumatic. And to then suddenly have this kind of fluffy, oh, everything's fine campaign, you know, it's really not that bad, is actually quite demeaning and it kind of, it makes you feel like what you've been through isn't isn't that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing, I mean, I obviously have no experience of breast cancer. I only have experience of leukemia as a cancer patient. Um, but I would say that the thing that slightly I found a bit off about some of these campaigns recently is that they are using celebrities instead of actual cancer patients to star in the campaigns and again I get it because they're well known and people know their faces but why can't you use the celebrities alongside cancer patients you know yeah it's more real have people who are actually going through it and who are going to benefit from the cancer charities that these campaigns support yeah exactly and it's something we've had particularly when we're doing videos it can be very tempting to put across a nice story about this is what this is the nice bits of the experience because um, you do you edit the content down. You want it to you want it to come across as a nice video that people want to watch. But equally, if you're doing something in the first place, you do need to put the actual real message yeah. across. There's no point putting you know, just personal view putting across a fluff piece that says this yeah. is how lovely yeah. this experience was. And if actually those aren't the real issues people want to talk about, mm-hmm. um, and I have that experience conversation with some patients with videos that we've done they wanted to make sure we do put across yes. their message these were the things that i experienced these were my issues this is what i want to talk about yeah, yeah. and also just be sensitive like you said about the tagline some of them have been what was the tagline it escaped to me i mean there was a few and i'm probably going to get the wording quite wrong but things like two is better than one yes that was it yeah. bosom buddies and and you know things like that it's it's it wasn't meant in the way that it was taken by a lot of people, but it, it, you've just got to be, I guess, just sensitive and and think how would people take that that tagline if they saw it in a campaign. Be more. I, yeah, I just feel if they'd sat down and stepped back and thought about yes. it for even just five more minutes, yeah. they might have seen a link. I yeah, exactly. Maybe <laughs> being a bit harsh. Um, and and again, I don't know for this particular instance but one of the big things I think that we think is quite important at leukemia care is to ask the patients about a project we're doing and does this make sense does this resonate what have we missed here yeah I mean I'm sure it's done with the absolute best of intentions um but sense checking things and making sure that they do reflect people yeah. people's experience yeah exactly just be sensitive to to how it might come across to people mm-hmm. yeah definitely and also i think it's these campaigns are great and they get the conversation out there but a bit like what zach was saying if you're constantly bombarded with these sort of you know positive um, messages that oh cancer you know it's fine it's just it's fine you know you have a bit of treatment and spend time with your friends and wear pink things and it's all great you know um, 
it can be quite isolating and then people going through cancer themselves will think okay but I don't feel that great all the time you know and I'm actually struggling with a lot of things um yeah. but no one else feels like this when they go through it so therefore I can't speak up about it so it's like you need people to also highlight the negative side of things like and just be able to have a platform where people can talk about it and that other people can then relate to it and say oh, I feel like that too sometimes um or you know there are really dark days and accepting that and it goes back to the dying thing you know it's it's not kind of all doom and gloom like actually talking about dying can actually be a really powerful thing yeah um you've embraced that you've you've accepted that you know we all have an end date an expiry date if you like and so if you're aware of that maybe it will mean that you live your life kind of that in an enhanced way you make more of life than you would previously i think that's a really good sentence to end the podcast on yeah i hope everyone's found it very useful um i hope it'll get to talking um if you want to know more about dying matters week just uh, google dying matters um and it should come up um it's www.dyingmatters.org um and we'll see you next month thank you guys Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk, or call our helpline 08088 010 444. See you next month.